Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Maybe you're an engineer, moved to the U.S. Maybe you're a business owner trying to pay suppliers in another country. You're a freelancer getting paid by someone in a foreign country. You should use TransferWise. When it comes to sending money, banks are stuck in the past. TransferWise is the future. Go to the future. It's better there. You pay into a local account, and TransferWise pays your recipient from an account in their country. Currencies don't need to cross borders. And that should matter to you because it lets TransferWise do things your bank can't. They charge one low fee. They give you a great low rate. And unlike your bank, TransferWise payments take seconds to set up. See how much you could save by going to TransferWise.com. You can download the app from Apple Store or Google Play. Once again, that's TransferWise.com. Transfer like I got to transfer money from one country to another country. And wise like I'm a wise person who listens to Recode Media. It's TransferWise, W-I-S-E dot com. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am here in Vox Media Studios with Tim Armstrong, who is CEO of Oath. It's a new title for you. Welcome, Tim. Peter, good to see you here in uh, the former Goldman Sachs building, 85, downtown. Amazing that you guys are here. The office looks spectacular. We're here. There's a WeWork upstairs where Goldman used to be. Wow. Things have changed. Times are changing. One thing that's not changed from the last 20 years, you've been working in internet media? Yep. Used to be running sales at Google. Yeah. You the first sales guy, first revenue guy at Google. One of them. Ran AOL forever. Yep. Still run AOL. Yep. But now you also run Yahoo. You can merge. They're two separate entities, but they're, they're now under the Oath umbrella at Verizon. Yes. Did I get it right? Yes. We have a house of brands under Oath, which is part of Verizon. House of brands. There you go. I like House of Brands. Um, so we're talking to you in late August, which is when I think this thing will run. Here's my first question for you. Why does it make sense for Verizon, which sells me cell phone service, to own a house of brands? Why does Verizon want to own content? Sure. So w- one thing that Verizon has in its favor is a position in mobile, which is pretty amazing. And uh, if you are a believer that uh, mobile and mobility in the future will become more important in people's lives. Cell phones are not going away. Cell phones are not going away. Um, and even if they did go away in the future, Verizon's in a position where their network and the power that they bring to connecting you know, humans and uh, devices together will be more important in the future than less important as part of that, Verizon's strategy has been to provide the connectivity, um, but in the last few years, they've also started to build services on top of the connectivity in the future. One of them is media, so that's where Oath fits in. There's a global strategy to have uh, media brands and uh, advertising and commerce-related activities on top of Verizon that go direct to consumer. And then there's a focus on really on other areas of Verizon's business model capabilities, which are telematics, which are bringing more connectivity to cars and fleets of cars and trucks overall. So there's an investment at Verizon on that. But you're not in the telematics business. I'm right? not in the telematics okay, business. I don't want to say telematics again. media business. So, so uh, back to yeah. media though, um, just so I get the strategy, is it that Verizon thinks, oh, media is a good business. We should layer that on top of the existing business we have. Or does Verizon think there's something about us owning media that will make that media more valuable because we also own pipes? It's really about Verizon owning pipes and being able to deliver media direct to the Verizon consumers and the fact that media can be a non-Verizon business also, meaning that we can deliver on other people's pipes a value in a business model. So there's two different aspects of the business. One is the owned and operated strategy, how we deliver 
better media, better experiences to Verizon customers. The second part of the strategy is how do we deliver better media and better advertising models to other people's customer bases as well and give them a business model. So it's really kind of a platform play for Verizon on network and off network. So I get tacking on another business. That part makes sense. I don't get, and I asked I asked the folks at Time Warner and AT and T about this as well. Other pipe owners, I, I, the pipe business seems great to me. Right, it's pretty hard to disrupt it. I mean, in some cases, if you're a Comcast or a Charter, you either have a literal monopoly or duopoly. The wireless guys, there's four, maybe less. Um, by the time this thing is done, media seems like a really rough business, and. The stuff that Yahoo and AOL put out, the stuff that Time Warner, HBO, CNN put out, has to be available on all the other platforms. That's that's the point of it, right? Yes. Because it's widely distributed. If it's so, the, the idea that that there's going to be something special that happens when you connect via AT and T to HBO, or you consume Huffington Post, or sorry, Huff Post. Right. On AOL, that's the part where I get confused. Yeah, so the, the, the horizon. I don't, I don't get what makes it special. When right, it's part of the platform. Uh, the special part is is actually the global platform ability. So um, while we will deliver all of our services to Verizon and all the services to other carriers and other people, which we're doing today. The special part comes down in building a substantial business in the new economy. I think one of the things that Verizon has been very forward thinking on is if you go out five or 10 years, where is it likely that the value is going to go, that consumers are going to go, and that money is going to go? And the reason that we're making a bet on kind of digital and mobile media and advertising and and uh, subscriptions is – if you just look at the consumer base today that's connected to the internet or mobile or connected to linear TV, you know, there's one very clear throughput, which is it's all going mobile. And as mobile continues to change, it will all go, uh, you know, network IP delivered. And so Verizon has an ability in their business today to have their network business head in that direction, but secondarily, a real opportunity to build a new global business that's not just connected to the Verizon network. So the specialness for Verizon is their customers are going to get access to content and services that uh, that we can bring them. Uh, but the second piece that's more important is building a global franchise platform business that could be a substantially large business in the future and pull a lot that, of value from the that future. That works whether someone's accessing it through AT&T. Yes. I, Comcast. I, I'd fully expect, and we do today, to have deals with other carriers and other distributors uh, over overall. And Verizon expects that also. You so have to, you right? Have like to, if, if HuffPost yeah. is it now HuffPost or it's a HuffPost, HuffPost. Post, right? Yes. If you could only get a version of HuffPost through Verizon, HuffPost is much less valuable. Yes. And even if you said, "Well, we're going to make parts of HuffPost available only to Verizon subscribers," that right. makes it less valuable. I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. So yeah, so we, we would love to have HuffPost be on every platform everywhere in the world. It's on the internet. It is yes, everywhere. It's everywhere now. And so we were going to keep it going everywhere. The other thing I would just point out is, you know, there's roughly 3.7 billion people connected today. Um, that number is going to double. Another 3.7 billion are coming overall. So even if you're one of the network or distributors that has 100 million consumers, it's a very powerful paid relationship that they have. But in the future, you're going to want to make that 100 million subscribers, 200 million, 300 million, 400 million, because the scale of the world is going to get so big in terms of the connected consumer. So that's another opportunity for Verizon here is to have us touch. We touch over a billion consumers every month right now for us to even scale that further and then drive a much bigger membership mentality over time of how do we continue to have more and more consumers that authenticate and become members of our services overall. 
All right. I want to come back to the, the pipes content discussion later, but but I want to talk to you about, about how you got here. Um, like I mentioned, you've been doing this basically your pr- entire professional life, right? Yep. Working on the internet, selling. I started in newspapers. Started in newspapers, yes. got out of that. Yes. You started doing what in newspapers? Um, I started, I first wanted to go work for a bank because I thought I wanted to get into more like investment banking. But after I was there for a few months, I realized that was not the career for me. Um, and You'd so, be a good banker. What? You think so? I don't know. No, I don't think I I was. It wasn't a passion point of mine. So I uh, decided to leave and and, I was always super interested in media. Like when I was in high school, I used to read probably 15 magazines related to business. And I read tons of business biographies, things like that. I was kind of always interested in entrepreneurialism and and things like that. So I think once I got out of college and I went to this bank, I realized it's probably not the right place for me. So I started to look around and the idea of starting a newspaper came up and I did it and did it for a couple of years, started one, we bought another one. This Um, is where? This is in Boston in Cambridge, had office in in Cambridge Square, actually right next to the Click and Clack Brothers on NPR, as a matter of fact, where our next door door neighbors in our office, they're they're still around. I haven't haven't kept in touch with them, but I I assume they're still around. But. Um, so then, you know, but in, in those travels, I had run into seeing Mosaic, which is really the first kind of more commercial internet browser. So this is mid nineties. This is yes, yeah, early nineties, probably nineteen ninety four. And um, I, the day I saw it on the spot, the first time the browser fired up, um, and I asked, "How do you get information into the browser?" And they described it. I thought, "Wow, this is like ten times better than the newspaper." And your business. eyes got really wild. Like we just yes, did now. and um, so that I literally after that meeting went back and we started trying to put our newspaper online, and then I realized that like. It might be better just to go do online stuff overall if I was really passionate about it and like learn it from scratch. And that's kind of what I did. That started my journey. So you started off as a as a publisher. Yes. And then at some point moved. So I remember encountering you with you were at Snowball. Yes. Remind people. Most yes. people do not know what Snowball was. Tell yes. us what Snowball sure. was. Sure. So I well I left the newspaper business, went out to the West Coast and worked for Paul Allen, which was a company called Starwave that launched ESPN.com, NFL.com, ESPN.com. Paul Allen was the, one of the Microsoft co-founders. Microsoft co-founders. And then that company got bought by Disney. I ended up moving back to uh, New York to work at Disney for a couple of years. And then – I uh, had one interim stop before Snowball, which was Rick Scott, who's the governor of Florida now, uh, was the CEO of Columbia HCA, which is the largest healthcare company in the world. He bought a company called America's Health Network. I went there with two other people to kind of start a cable internet company. That got sold to Rupert Murdoch. I ended up working at Fox. So you touched every media conglomerate. Everybody. And in, then, in the span of a couple of years. And then uh, the people who had been at Star, a couple of people, Rich LaFerge, who started the IB, started a company called Snowball, and they kind of, uh, you know, we started it basically from scratch. And it, it was what? It was a media company at the time period targeted at basically millennials at that time Well, we would have called millennials. Gen, no, Gen X. That's it was me. called – it's yeah. you. It yeah. was targeted at you. Did you use any Snowball? Did you use IGN? I think IGN? I bought drugs from somebody at Snowball Oh, you once. did? Yeah. Uh, you mean online or offline? No, I think I went to the office or outside the <laughs> office and someone, someone gave me a bag. <laughs> it wasn't something. me. Yeah, no, it wasn't uh, me. So, uh, so we had a bunch of internet properties uh, that were targeted at Gen X. And it was the company actually did uh, very well. As a matter of fact, 85 Broad, where we are, we went public. We were the last internet company to go public before the crash. This is uh, when every internet company went public. This is when and everyone was going public, and we had uh, the the whole the whole shoot match. We pressed the button at the at the Nasdaq, 
And um, and then a couple, few, few, I guess a week later, two weeks later, the market crashed. And um, you know, but we had built up a fairly successful audience company and a successful revenue model um, there. Uh, but uh, and in the course, we were still running it. And then Google popped up. Um, you know, about six or eight months after we went public, and um, I ended up going to Google. So Google pops up there when they pop up initially, right? They're this weird search engine, and I don't even think they were articulating that they were a search engine at right. the time, right? Did you see immediately, oh, this is going to be a big deal, or this looks interesting, let me try that? All right, I'll tell you a story, which I haven't really told publicly uh, that much. But when I was at Starwave and Disney got bought by Starwave, I got put on a team of consultants. It was a few of us internally and then some, I think it was McKinsey consultants, who went out to look at all the internet businesses that Disney was buying and then all the available businesses to look at to invest. And when we went out, um, we met with all kinds of companies and all the companies that Disney was investing in. And um, I, at this time period, had done a lot of internet content um, and done a lot of internet advertising. It wasn't that much. It was a small industry then, but I had spent a lot of time on it. And we went to an InfoSeek meeting. And at the InfoSeek meeting, there was a giant – we had a discussion with the InfoSeek team. And two of the senior people in the business side got into an argument over how valuable the keywords were. And at that time period, out of all the companies we went to see, the InfoSeek meeting – InfoSeek is a search engine. A search engine. Yeah. And uh, when I started asking, like, why are you arguing over the keywords and the value of them? And I kind of – we got deeper and deeper deeper into the keywords. It always stuck in my mind – this is two years before I went to Google – that out of all the ad models and business models, that search might be the most effective, immediate – way to connect advertising to information. And when we went back to do the giant, it turned out to be the Go Network, which Disney launched, but we were on the team kind of you're, helping you're, build a Sometimes you'll randomly end up on a Disney site, like an ESPN, and there'll be a Go, go in the it URL. Says go in the that's, URL. That's the heritage. So there. that was the project I worked on. And when we got into the room with all the consultants and a bunch of the executives, you know, they went around the room and said, what did everybody see? And I said, hey, I think we should be in search. Search, search strikes me as high user intent, high user interest. Uh, it works well. And the advertisers, and I I told the story about InfoSeek, and at, in the room I got voted down. We ended up doing uh, calendaring and email and a bunch of other things like that. But in the back of my mind, I always had that parked in the back of my mind. So when I had been using Google, Google was called Backrub, and then it was called uh, Google. So I was a Google user. So. Uh, a person from Starwave actually had told someone at Google about me, and they had called Omid Kordestani, called who's the chairman of Twitter now. I met him in New York. And um, he asked me what I thought about advertising and on the internet and, and about uh, search. And I think I told him that story. I said, "Look, here's my here's why I'm having the meeting with you. It's because I use Google, and I think that you know the experience I saw." Internet advertising for search seems to be one of the things that's really clear, really fast, and has a really potential high ROI. And Google had been testing kind of advertising uh, a little bit at that point. And so long story short, I ended up going out to meet uh, with the founders, with Omid and, and – So you met Larry and Sergey. Yeah. What was being a, a revenue guy, sales guy at Google like, both early on and throughout the career at a company that's dominated by engineers? Yeah. Um, and I think you see it quite clearly now, like Larry and Sergey really are not engaged yeah. with, with advertising as a business. They're not terribly interested in it, it seems like. I mean, they understand the value of it. Um, and it seems like that sort of ethos is up and down the company. You know, my experience there was was probably different because I was there so early. And, um, you know, when I was there, 
we basically everyone sat together, so we would all kind of be in the same area. And the engineers, um, Larry and Sergey. By the way, Larry and Sergey were highly engaged in building advertising when it started, and um, they understood this is the thing that will allow us to keep well, doing what, what we're doing. Just to go back to ancient history, is Yahoo had bought Ink to Me and uh, go to. Um, and so when they did that, when I got to Google, Google's main revenue model was licensing search to other companies. Yahoo bought two companies and then started giving search licensing away for free. So advertising, all of a sudden, search licensing went away and advertising became the main thing. So we were able to get some of the best engineers at Google who were working on search licensing to come work on advertising and the whole company got engaged on how do we build ad models. So we, we, they needed to do advertising because their other business the, the business model was, was essentially going away. Um, and that's one of the untold stories about Google people forget is, you know, they think, oh, Google did search and they got an advertising and whammo, it took off. Reality, what happened is Google was in search licensing, having people pay them a license their search technology. Yahoo bought two companies, put them together, and started giving it away for free. And so Google had to pivot. So and this Google is why everyone pivoted. rolls their eyes when they hear pivot, but yeah. pivot's a thing that even yes. the, literally the most successful yes. company yeah. does at some point. Yes. And, and by the way, there was a lot of tension inside of Google because advertising if you're if you're in a company that's doing search licensing and you have this small little business with advertising in it you know and you know ads can be distracting on search results and we it took us a long time to figure out how to do them properly but you know it wasn't like oh great we have advertising it was like oh my god we're going to have to put ads on the pages now and we're going to have to figure that out and there was a lot of tension you know about that inside but but i, I would also say that it was a you know, Google's very, very, and I still think this, they're this way today, they're very good at being very focused. Um, and so the focus on advertising came into play. And then we literally used to spend hours and hours and hours on individual campaigns, individual advertisers, individual pages, test everything. And, and you had a, cl- a very eclectic crew of people working on it, engineers, uh, and, uh, you know, Salar Kamengar, who, who ended up running YouTube, Susan Wojcicki, who's running YouTube now, you know, Mead, who's at Twitter, uh, a guy named David Skako, who is a really phenomenal uh, business person uh, overall. So there, there was 10 or 15 people that we were all kind of constantly engaged in it. And then it started to work. And once it started to work, we were like, all right, let's put the pedal down. Um, and that's when we really started hiring and scaling. The way people describe your role to me when you were there was you were the guy, you were a human, not a robot slash engineer, and you could go speak to people outside of Google, especially in the media world. And you were sort of the translator. Were you sort of aware that that was consciously your role, that you would go talk to really brainy guys like Salar, but Salar would never come to a podcast, right? He would, wouldn't want to be talking to really anyone versus yeah. he's actually super personable but, no, I, but, yeah. but you, you know what i'm saying he's, well, he's, he's, he's not an outgoing yeah. well, person yeah. at that time period when google when i went to go work at google the first building outside of mountain view was my apartment in new york city eight six in columbus and the plan was eventually they wanted me to move to california but what happened was because i had all the relationships in new york with media i was able to kind of instantly bring google into the advertising agencies and and what i ended up doing is i would fly back and forth every other week at first it was every week to california and i spent a huge amount of time with the engineers and the product people with helping f- figure out the ad model and um and and essentially what we did is we worked as a collaborative team just to figure it out figure it out figure it out figure it out and so my relationship was twofold i understood I had built a lot of technology myself and those other businesses overall. 
Um, and then over time, basically, my relationships externally were really, I think they were helpful, um, but also my translation of understanding what was happening on the product and engineering side and be able to, you know, I guess, be the be a translator for that was, was helpful. So you were, and, you were conscious of that. But also, I was the one of the people, one of a few people, I think, who were tip of the spear in terms of understanding where the opportunities were. So when things like AdSense came up or other things like that, we had such deep knowledge in the marketplace of understanding customer pain points, and I understood the product well is being able to bring some of those type of ideas with other people back into the company. So we we, we literally had like a phenomenal probably three, four, five-year run at, during the company um, where product engineering and sales were all humming at the same time. And Eric Schmidt had come in. I started about a year before Eric started at Google, but er- Eric came in. What number in, employee were you, do you know? I don't know. It was probably around 100, I guess, or so. Around 100 yeah. at Google. Yeah. So you're round 100 at Google. Yeah. They go public. Yeah. You get paid really well because you're the revenue guy at Google and also you're number 100. So you make an enormous amount of money. And then at some point, you leave Google. It seems like, like you mentioned, Susan Jeske, Salar, they're still there. Yeah. Why, why did you leave? You know, I, um, I have a personal philosophy, which is, you know, I'm somebody, I'm an extreme learner. Like, I like to learn. And so I, and I say this to other people, and people ask me career advice. They say, why did you make changes? Why did you do it? And typically, every time I made a change, I felt like that from a personal standpoint, um, I wasn't learning as much. And I think when you're a leader and the leader's not learning as much, I think that becomes a problem for the organization also. So I felt like for Google, I had been there for basically 10 years, um, had accomplished a lot of what I wanted to accomplish. The company was really successful. I had a phenomenal group of people that I worked with. And I felt like that at that time period, if there was another challenge, that I could go do that would be really challenging. So I, I, I write personal goals down every year and Thanksgiving week and the kind of year before I or months before I went to AOL, I had written down, you know, basically e- either at Google or someplace else, find the most challenging thing I could find that would be the hardest thing to do. Um, and when the AOL thing came up, my mind was already kind of in that mode and it seemed like a, something that might be a hard challenge. So uh, from the outside, it seemed like, oh, well, Tim ran revenue. Super powerful, but yep. he's not. He hasn't been a CEO, right? And at AOL, he can be the CEO. Yeah. Was it publicly traded at that time? It or was, was private, and but it was going to. It was going to yes. be spun out. Yeah. And that the title and being able to run an entire operation was the attraction for you. But you're saying that that plus the fact that it was in bad shape and needed to be fixed. Yeah. Also, I think it was. Um, I'm a big Warren Buffett disciple. Like I like to read about what Warren Buffett says. And you know, one of the things he says is a lot of businesses, people forget that there's more puffs left in the cigar. And at that point, it's hard to remember now because AOL you know, has merged with Verizon and we have the Yahoo deal and those things. But back in those days, everyone had written off AOL. And when I looked at it, I thought – I thought the future of content was going to be big, and I thought Silicon Valley would ha- take a long time to figure out content, uh, and that maybe there was an opportunity to go to AOL, build a differentiated business that was not copying Silicon Valley, going down the content and brand advertising path, and that, you know, frankly, that people had counted AOL so much that we'd get some leeway at time to figure it out. Um, and then I, I think 
trying to be a first-time CEO, I went out and visited with a lot of other CEOs before I started just to get their advice. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I, I really it was the challenge. It was the fact that I thought content and, and things like brand advertising were an open space uh, versus Silicon Valley and that, uh, you know, we'd maybe figure something out that would work um, overall. I want to ask you about AOL and your yep. experience there. But first, we're going to hear from an advertiser because we love advertisers here as well. We love Recode it. Media. We'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by Upside. Stop wasting your time pricing flights and hotels at the same old sites. There's a much better way to buy business travel. The only site you need is Upside.com. Upside is a complete game changer. In less than five minutes, they show you the exact flights you're looking for, all the big-name hotels you'd want to stay at, and here is the Upside difference. You bundle your flights and hotels together for one price, you save money, and they reward you with a gift card to places like Amazon every time you buy a trip. Bundling saves your company so much money, and Upside gives you a gift card. We like gifts. Forget about how you used to buy your business trips. Try Upside.com. Right now, when you use the promo code MEDIA, you know how to spell media, you're guaranteed to get at least a $100 Amazon gift card for your first trip. So use the promo code MEDIA so they know we sent you to get a $100 gift card free. Go to Upside.com. It's the better way to buy business travel. There's a minimum purchase required. See the site for complete details. This show is also brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? If you're hiring, do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology matches the right people to your job, and they do it better than anyone else. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, more than 80% of the jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. You have to juggle emails, calls to your office, you just screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the best candidates with immediate results. Right now, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, zero dollars. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter, so you can post jobs for free. Back here with Tim Armstrong, CEO of Oath. We're talking to you about one of your earlier jobs, which is running AOL, which you're still doing. I remember when you took that job, I thought, all right, I know what Tim Armstrong is doing here. He was running revenue at, at Google. Great job. He's going to take over AOL. No one has ever successfully turned around a consumer internet company, ever. Priceline, Price maybe. Line, yeah. But and, and he's a smart guy, so he knows he can't fundamentally turn around a declining internet property. What he's going to do is he knows sales. AOL used to have one of the best sales operations. It's been sort of systematically destroyed by the current previous managers. Tim Armstrong will fix sales. He'll show some sort of increase. And then he'll declare victory and be able to say, I, I improved the fortunes of AOL. No one's ever done it. I'm done. But instead, what it seemed like, instead of just like fixing sales, you went and sort of stripped the whole thing down, made a whole bunch of acquisitions. I think you tried a bunch of different strategies. It seemed like you had a much more ambitious approach to AOL than really made sense from the outside. Yeah, there were there were two strategies you could have taken. I think one was to basically milk it, um, and the other one was to essentially see if you could take the model and tweak the model and change it and see if you could get it back to growth again. 
And so we tried a lot of things. Um, and I think that – What was your – from the outside, what, what was your grand going in, written down plan? How it- Super simply, it was to basically become a super large content uh, engine overall and then tie that to a differentiated ad model overall that would more heavily lean on content-related activities and really what programmatic ended up being into programmatic – uh, advertising, and then try to pick a bunch of spots that look like they were open white spaces. I'm, I'm a really big believer in you have no competitors, your competitors yourself. Like instead of, you know, if you've already read it in the newspaper and you're going to go do something, that opportunity is probably gone. Let's choose some spaces that nobody's in. And so we we took a more aggressive approach to trying to turn the company around by trying to grow it rather than weren't milk there it. people weren't there wise guys like me counseling but who were actually smart counseling and saying tim this is way too ambitious yes all you got a publicly traded company here all you got to do and all you should be able to do right. is just is improve it marginally yes stock will go up yep everyone's a winner yes you get out yes you uh, wrote many articles to that effect yeah uh, over time you wrote them. and right. uh and i would say you know and by the way I think but I mean, were, not not jerks in the media, like no, me, no. but actual actual people you talk to who had influence, or people on the board, or yes. investors saying, "Slow down, just do this one thing." Yes. Yeah. So there were there was a lot of focus on just incrementally improve it, and maybe something will happen, and and it won't end up being like a catastrophe overall. But it was which should be a victory again, right, a victory right. if you could do that. But I also going back to like the ambition, I, you don't attract a lot of talent doing that. Uh, number one, and number two is the opportunity in the future was so much bigger than just kind of incrementally trying to change the company. So we went for it. And by the way, you, you covered it. You know, we had very big ups and downs in the cycle of it. I mean, the stock, we went public at, you know, 24. It went down to nine at one point. Um, so, you know, we paid the price for a lot of that risk that we took overall. But, you know, the thing I'm happy about is that we, you know, we turned it around from revenue and profitability and, and you know, 2.7 years overall, which was pretty amazing considering what shape the asset was in. And then the second piece is by the time we exited with the Verizon deal, you know, we basically had outperformed the S&P 500 for those years that we were running uh, AOL. And then two is, you know, I think our strategy um, – Parts of it really worked, and I think that was um, a lot of – it was super difficult, but it was a lot of fun. Um, it was also a lesson, though, in – you know, we, we have a bunch of Navy SEALs that work with us and have for, for a few years. And one They're of, actual Navy SEALs? Yes, and w- one of them says – has a great saying, which is it's always darkest before dawn. And I think as a, our leadership team, I think, learned a lot of lessons about – staying with a strategy if if there's a real consumer value proposition against it you're going to go through periods where things get really dark but as long as you know where you're you know what the value is you're adding eventually the sunlight will come out and that's and a few of the things that we did a few you know the sun finally shone through the clouds and we had good good results seems like from the outside yeah. that you tried a bunch of different things that you weren't on a path and you knew yeah. you were going this direction you you bought HuffPost, you bought a lot of content, you bought a bunch of ad tech, yep. uh, you sold a bunch of patents, that yep. were like a billion dollars, yep. you were in local media with Patch. Yep. Yep. Um, it seems like you tried a bunch of different stuff. Were you conscious that you were trying a bunch of different things and one of them would work or were that was in your mind this is all the same path? I, well, my our strategy was basically I, I believed that 
the front end consumer businesses over time, you'd be able to build mega communities around things. Like when we bought the HuffPost and had 20 million users, it now has 227 million. That over time's brands would matter. Like one of the bets we made, I, I, I was in the house of brands mentality, we'll end up with a bunch of big consumer front end brands. And then the back end systems will end up getting consolidated by technology and you'll have data and the ability to target things. So my, my grand plan was, build a whole bunch of super large differentiated consumer front ends and then have back-end platforms that consolidate all the data and so consumer usage. What we used to call websites, now yes. we call them brands. Yes. Huffington Post, but also TechCrunch yes. Tech and, and, and Gadget. Yeah, Patch was one of the things that we put a and, big bet and on. And so yeah. different people come to them for different reasons, right. and there's different ad propositions, and in the back-end, they all have the same technology. Yes. It sounds a bit like Vox Media, actually. Yes, it does. It's, it's very similar to Vox. And, uh, and you know, our, our premise is that if you're an advertiser, the way we monetize, you, you know, you may be looking for millennial moms that like technology, that if you go through all of our properties, like today in that example, you probably find five or 10 million women who like technology who are in that age demographic. So for an advertiser, it's one input. Like what I like to say about Oath is Oath is cons uh, consumer front end touch points with one input to reach that audience, all the audiences, which is Oath. And that's kind of what we're building out right now. And that that's, that's always been the vision that we've been on. And I, I think that some of those consumer front ends things work well. Some of them we had to change. Um, and then the ad system side has evolved very rapidly. So we had, we've always had one vision there, but we've had to continue to update that when mobile, video, programmatic, those things really hit. What's the single deal you made that you think was most successful during that? Was it was it buying HuffPost? I, wasn't, I, that wasn't the biggest one. It wasn't the biggest one. I, I would say. I'd say HuffPost was the one where people were shocked. Investors were shocked. Like we were on the in investor Funny, call. It was 300. It was 315 no, million. Nothing. Was, but here's what happened. We're, we're on the investor call and our, our head of investor relations at the time was our head of FB&A, Owen Ryan, was across the table from me. So we got an analyst call and I announced, you know, we're going to be acquiring the Huffington Post. And um, Owen's, a, he's a Irish and he, he turned totally red, like immediately as soon as the call started. And so I looked across the table I said, "What? You know, what? What? What are you all red for?" And he he uh, he put up his fingers and he said, two. And I said, "We're down two percent." He said, "No, we're down twenty two percent." So, you know, I would say that's the moment where investors said, "Oh my God." Tim Armstrong might be really the stuff he's been talking about. He actually might go do. And so that was the point of the, and some investors wanted from us just the incremental returns and yep. those. And then they saw, oh my God, we might actually go on a, on a much larger vision. So I say HuffPost was a, was a turning point because it really was the first time we put it down. And, then, and I'd say the other deal that really mattered a lot was the patent deal. That was super helpful for us. It was something that we had in the, in the background, we negotiated the patents coming out of Time Warner, and we had that asset. And, and Julie Jacobs, who's our general counsel, deserves all the credit for that. She basically kept her eyes on the marketplace. And about I think it, that's important just because it gave you a billion dollars when you needed a billion dollars. Yes, and she she came. This we sold them in in kind of uh, in a, in January, but or February. But the the previous June, Julie had come to me and said, "Hey Tim, those patents that we own, I've been keeping an eye on the market." they're going to reach maximum valuation. So we should, if we're going to start this process, we should start it now. And, um, you know, Julie's just, uh, her judgment is impeccable. And so I said, all right, let's, let's do the full research, get outside firms to value it for us. So 
by the time we basically got to the point where we're selling the patents, the patent market had had took off. And at that time period, we had an activist investor uh, who was on us. And I think the activist investor was really pleasantly surprised that we actually had very thoughtfully in the company financially thought about the company as we were spending all this money. We were also thinking about how to harvest things to continue the spending. So we did the patent deal. It was an you know, amazing deal how long, how long did you run AOL for? Run AOL for yeah. about six years. It's a long, and a really long time. And, yeah. and again, you you guys were not crushing it for right. six years, right? Yep. Up and yeah, down, up and back down. and forth. Yep. You got hammered a lot. Yep. Press. Yep. Investors. Yep. I know that you work with Navy SEALs, and it's always yeah. dark, dark before the dawn. But at some point, you go, "This is a real headache. I could do something else. Uh, I could." And and people would still get. But again, no one's going to fault you for not turning AOL around. Yep. Because right? again, no one's done it. So if you, you know, like, you know, I, th- I thought the same thing about Marissa Mayer for a long time at Yahoo. Like, why put up with that headache? You, again, you were very rich when you took the job. Yep. You didn't need that money. So I would say, um, you know, there's there's two things that I focused on all, all of the time. One was the people I worked with, and I felt a huge commitment because they, if you were at AOL at that time period, you had bought into our strategy. We told you what we're going to do. You probably, you know, everybody has a family at home. You have friends. You've told people, why are you working at AOL? Every time we got bad press, I'm sure people outside the building were asking people at work, why are you working there? Why are you working there? And they stuck with it. So one, I wasn't going to let those people down. And the second thing is, one of the decisions I made early on was to actually invest my own money in the company. And from my standpoint, investing my own money in the company made me focus my attention and energy that every one of the investors, every one of the employees, everybody who was involved with us was basically putting the same skin in the game that I was. And I had told people like investors, um, a lot of investors asked me that when things got tough. They said, Tim, you're not going to leave. Are you You're not going to pop out? And I said, no, my money, I didn't sell one share of stock the entire time I was there. And, you know, so I felt like from a standpoint of of what I verbally committed, um, and this is something I tell my kids all the time, I say, if you're, if you verbally committed to something, you might as well write a signed contract about it. And I told everybody I would stay in the pocket and the team would stay in the pocket. And, you know, I think one of the things I look back on that I'm happy about is during the AOL time period was, you know, essentially for the investors, you know, I did what I said I was going to do. And even when times were really tough, um, you know, we didn't take our eye off the ball. And I, I feel like that was a huge – those two things were big drivers. We, we've been alluding to tough times and criticism. What's the one move you wish you could have back? I'm sure there's a bunch. But what's right. the one where you're like, oh, man, I, that, that one I could have saved myself some pain? You know, I think um, one is – Patch is profitable now and has been growing. It's and the, the local, local yeah, we invested. You, the company you created or yes. helped create and then bought yes. at AOL. And the, gonna, we're going to reinvent local news. Yeah, and the theory there, which I, is playing out in the U.S. right now, actually, is that my theory there was, and John Broad, the co-founder, was um, over time the internet is going to end up really making the local news environment really painful. Local newspapers, those things. It was hard to see how the economics would work out there and it's going to leave this giant white space of opportunity to bring in local news and information to communities that really need it. And uh, you know, I've had many, many instances across the U.S. where things have happened, people I know, and uh, and staying connected to your local community is, is super important. So you want you say 
local news is going to be in big trouble. That's an opportunity for me, both because people need local news and also yeah. because there's going to be a business there. Yeah, there's a business, and also there's a bunch of math behind it also. We studied it for two years before we launched Patch, which is how often the average person moves, how much econ- we studied all the individual towns, how much there's an economy in an individual town, and there's some amazing statistics. There will be a super significant business in local in the future. But when I look back on the decision on Patch was there was two things with Patch that were problematic. One was it was a massive bet inside of a company that was a turnaround company and investors when they looked at it is I'm going on – it was almost like a pure VC bet at scale inside of a inside of a shareholder base that was like, wow, this is a significant bet on a really risky and they area. they were hammering it, cut it And loose, everyone in the planet, by the way, all the media was saying yep. patch isn't going to work, patch isn't going to work, patch isn't going to work. And it wasn't working. We were losing we, a ton of money. Yeah, well, we were uh, – I. I look at it differently. I'd say we were investing a ton okay. of money. P- Patch is like a 10-year type uh-huh. investment um, in a company that That's probably- That's your point about it being a VC deal. Like it's going to yes, take 10 years gonna, for this to It's going to take out. a long time. The, the second thing is that the we ha- there's a great business lesson, by the way, I learned in Patch, is we had very positive metrics on very small amounts of the property overall. And over time, it got used as the thing of patch is successful, it works in these in these following so areas. So you point to like Montclair or someplace in yes, Connecticut. Yes, and, and and over time what happened was, we we the lesson was we should have tightened f- way further down on the towns that were working and then made sure they were exactly getting replicated out in the market. And and the other area that was that was a challenge was making sure that Patch was a platform that people could input information as well as get information. And a lot of the early tech was built for outbound information that we yeah, would- Yeah, the pitch was always that you ran the local bakery and you are going to be able to go to Patch and buy an ad yes. in the local, th- but it yes. never really came and that, that it works now. So Patch is, is the, the Charles Hale uh, and Warren St. John and yep. the team running Patch now, they have they get huge kudos. They've, they've actually taken the original vision and turned it into reality. And I think you'll see Patch be a really successful long-term outcome company. But we weren't we were in the middle of doing a giant turnaround. Patch was only one of the things we were doing. We were spending a lot of money on it. And frankly, my attention time and ability to focus on it was not what it should have been. And I look back on it and I said I probably would handle that slightly differently than so we you're, did. So you're one of these guys who says, I'm gonna do it. This is what I'm gonna do. My word is bond. I'm not gonna go back on it. Yeah. It's a verbal contract, it's a real contract, and we're doing patch. Yeah. Sports mentality, we're going. Yeah. Everyone's telling you, don't, 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 don't. But they were right to tell you not to do it, right? right? So how do you balance sort of that impulse to be like, I'm going down this path, follow me, charging versus, oh, actually, maybe these guys are right that I, should, I shouldn't go down this path. Yeah. Well, I think the tweak I would make on that is I think people saw local as an opportunity, but they were afraid we were going after it too quickly and and with too much abandon. And but personality was how do you sort of go – how do you balance the idea of like you're going? You've set your mind. You, you want to yeah. do this. You're serious. You got to go all in versus yeah. taking an input yeah. from people who actually turns out yeah. they were correct. Yeah. Well, so here's what I'd say is, and I've been when we did the Yahoo deal. One of the things I went back in is I went back and looked at a lot of those situations, and I considered my job blank from scratch. I'm like, once the oh thing comes together, I'm starting a new job. What do I need to learn from the past and what are things that are uh, I need to look forward to in the future? And, and I'd say a, a few of the lessons that you're pointing to is, you know, there's two sides of the coin. One is listen to everybody and two is listen to nobody, right? And the, the reality is what you need to do is listen to the best judgment you possibly can and try to look at the best data you possibly can. 
And then there's going to be some unknowns. And the, the reality was patch is an opportunity. The Hale brothers have turned it profitable and they've run it the right way. The judgment uh, change and, and mistake I made was going exactly what you said, too bullish down a path without the without making sure those early positive metrics were actually coming true in all the other uh, markets. And we should have tightened down on it uh, earlier. So I would say you have to be aware and listen to everybody's feedback overall. You have to try to get sound business judgment yourself and with people around you. And then the other thing that we've been really focused in on at AOL the last few years, which has helped us a lot, is I would say manage in reality. And inside of a corporation, there's a lot of non-reality that happens. Your job as CEO or a leader of a group or a manager is to actually take a step back and say, what's the reality in this? And where are we? And what do we need to change? So going back to that situation, we probably did roll out too quickly. Uh, we the the criticisms we were getting a lot of them were probably accurate, um, and we could have done a better job out of the gates narrowing that focus, and that's really helped me in the since since then, like I think improve my my style of uh, management, but also just the judgment piece of like how to correctly make judgments about things overall, and that was you know patch was a can you think of something that. That has happened since where you said, I'm going this way, and someone tapped you on the shoulder and said, Tim, I got to talk to you. And you said, Oh, yeah, you're right. And that's, that's, wouldn't have happened prior to that? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's situations I'm dealing with right now. We're doing 2018 planning, and uh, we have a process that we're running through for people are coming in with investment ideas. And there's been a couple of the investment ideas that have come in, which on their own merit are places that I think are business opportunities. I think there's white space. I think we could probably go after them. But the mixture of what's already there today and what we could potentially get done doesn't strike me as like executionally possible, even though if you ask me point blank, do you think there's a big opportunity there? I'd say, yeah. If you were a VC, you'd put the money I, in. I may put the money in, but today I know that with our capabilities, we probably can't do it. And I, even, I, even though you're Verizon, which doesn't have unlimited resources, but close. Yeah. Well, well Peter, here's one, one thing we decided to run the company on inside of Verizon, which we could have chosen not to do, but it's been a huge benefit. One of the things I studied over the last couple of years is zero-based budgeting, like the 3G model and those things. So we've actually – AOL's what's, probably what's – th- I think I know what those things mean, but you tell me. So they are a model where you basically – every business unit has to justify all of their exp- expenses and existence every year. And it's not where you show up and say, oh, my budget was this last year. I want 3% more. AOL internally – is probably more stringently run than when we were public. And our results, we had better earnings results inside of Verizon. And we probably could have chosen to, to take more advantage of Verizon's assets and do other things, but we decided to get very focused on operational excellence. And so all of these ideas that are coming in right now, I'm putting through this very stringent filter with the management team. And we've got a great combined management team. The Results that we will end up getting as a business, you know, we're ahead of plan this year, uh, and we've been well well ahead of plan, are coming from our discipline. And I, if you trace it all the way back to the patch days, a lot of those lessons are things that I've been implementing myself and, our, and listening to our management team about running that way. And, and I think that's a big benefit for us for the future. Um, just so I'm clear, Verizon's spending a ton of money on video. They may or may not launch an OTT thing. They're out buying a bunch of stuff through Go90. That's not your deal, right? That's Marnie Walden. We are 
working on those things uh, together. Uh, Go90 has been run separately, although that is now uh, – there's kind of a co-strategy on Go90. And I think one of the things you'll see from us in the future is – uh, more cohesive strategy in terms of the total video investment and in, ter- in terms of matching that video investment where there's distribution. Um, and I'm, re- I'm super bullish on that opportunity for the Verizon Oath connection to have the more cohesive strategy going forward. And we're really on top of that right now. Everyone in, in digital media is competing against Facebook and Google, right? Whatever stat you're looking at, 70%, 80%, 90% of each new dollar goes to them. And a lot of folks are looking at that and saying, I'm going to opt out of that fight. I'm going to do something else. It looks like you're headed straight into it. And we were just having this whole discussion about charging in and, and, and people saying, don't do that. How do you avoid the path problem again, right? Which is not the – you're going to be very conservative in your budgeting, but it just seems like, look, these are these are steamrollers. These are forces of nature. It doesn't seem like how well you execute, you're going to be able to pull ad dollars away from them. So I would say um, I'm in violent agreement with you. Uh, I think the worst thing that we could do is uh, Facebook and Google are Olympic athletes with gold medal performances. The Latin, let's say they're they're on the they're on the the high bar or uh, one of those Olympic things or diving. We're not going to become divers. Uh, we have a differentiated strategy to partner with Google and Facebook, but not directly compete with them. And we may compete in advertising dollars, but our strategy in advertising is not the same as Google and Facebook's. And I would, I would say that from what's because yeah. they just want every dollar, right? I right. mean, what's and you want presumably the same, and they'd be very happy to settle for five yeah. cents. Yeah. So we're. Um, I'm not going to go deeply into our strategy, but we are have a different distribution model, uh, different measurement model, and different data model than they're building that we're going to have. And I think you will see us, you know, over the course of the next 12 months, roll out a series of products that are differentiated from Google and Facebook. Um, and this is also a not a winner-take-all market. As big as those guys are, and they are big, and they are ferocious from a competitive standpoint. There is so much opportunity left uh, in the world, both on the consumer side and on the advertiser side, that I believe our spaces will be in, will be differentiated. And, you know, we did a good job of this up front with programmatic. I see the same opportunity for us in in spaces outside of Google and Facebook um, overall. You were early at Google, super successful. You ran AOL. Now you're at Verizon, giant telco. Um, but you're not running Verizon. What, what's the personal upside for you at staying at a giant company where you don't have full control over what you're doing? Yeah, I think what I would I grew up playing uh, a lot of athletics, and uh, there was teams that I was captain of the team. There's teams I've been owners of. There's teams I've been the coach of. Those things. I'm the type of personality. Um, I've been a public CEO. I've done a whole bunch of others. I've done startups. I've sold startups. Uh, overall. I'm not somebody who looks at whether or not I'm in charge or not. I look at the team, um, and it's the same way I was in athletics growing up. Uh, There are people who are true team players who actually get uh, uh, excited for other people to win uh, also. That's my personality. I love being on a team where we have people going to win, and I'd say – at our company today, Oath, whether it's Jeff Bonfort who runs communications or Simon who's running uh, content or uh, you know all, all of the people, Tim Malman running platforms, uh, Ralph who's running DMS, uh, all of the people that we have at the business, Ali Klein, our CMO, Julie Jacobs, our GC, Holly Hess, our CFO, 
Inside of Verizon, we have a great team at our company. We have an amazing uh, team and opportunity um, around us. And uh, I and everyone on our team, I believe, are team players. So whether it's good for me or not, it's good for me because I love playing do on the team. Do you want to run a public company again? Uh, I don't. I don't think about that now. I honestly don't because if you told me – Five years ago, we had the opportunity we had today from starting from AOL, where we are today in terms of being able to potentially get in a marketplace with a Google or Facebook over time. You know, this has been the ideal outcome for me uh, and I think for our team. So I don't have any wandering eyes or wandering things. And when I write my goals down, my goal isn't run another public, you know, company. My goal is, you know, let's build one of the largest multi-billion consumer platforms in the world and uh, and hopefully give back to the world also. I think that's another thing we've done a really good job of. What about politics? That, does that appeal to you? No. I don't know you why everyone always asks everyone, me that. So that's why I got to ask. Oh, so everyone asks me that. I'm because uh, you get successful in business, you have a lot of money. Seems like you could go do something else. Yeah, my life and focus is pretty much the opposite uh, of that. And uh, I don't know. I always get asked about that. That rumor started like a few years ago. I don't know why people ask me. I have zero. Maybe interest maybe in that. one day your answer will change and we'll be rewarded for asking. Oh, well, you could. This could be the moment, but, but I, no, I, I, got, I don't think I it's going to happen. Uh, Tim Armstrong, your your publicist here is just bouncing up and down because she wants to get you out of here. So we will let you go. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Peter. Thanks to you guys for listening. You guys know what we ask of you, which is just tell someone else so we can keep bringing this to you for free. Um, Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell, Eric Johnson, my editor, Chris Basil. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week.